It's over. I have the upper ground. Okay, so I was thinking, I'm going to read the passage that we're going to talk about from 1 Samuel. Okay. The passage about David and Goliath. Yeah. And then I'm going to, and you can do this too, I'm going to lay out some background information. And I'm getting this background information from a talk given by Malcolm Gladwell titled Mm -hmm. The Unheard of Story, or The Unheard Story of David and Goliath. And it's a TED Talk that you can find on YouTube. And it's it's based on his book, and correct me if I'm wrong, called David and Goliath, right? Like yep. the talk in his book, the talk might be a promotion for his book. But there's mm-hmm. some really interesting background information that just adds a little bit of uh, context to the story and helps us to understand and maybe draw out some insight. I'm also getting just a little bit extra uh, from a sermon or or talk that I listened to by Pastor Charles Swindoll and he mentioned a lot of the same things that Malcolm Gladwell talked about though his what he drew out actually from the story was just a little bit different than what Malcolm Malcolm Gladwell drew up was there mm-hmm. anything you wanted to add to that outline because I was thinking we read the passage add some historical context and then discuss sort of some key observations and I, I the question that I want to that I want to discuss is where what can we say about God and the way he interacts in in the practical world and reality through the story there is one thing that I wanted to add okay it's very related I wanted to also mention a few other stories that I think are on the same route that you're talking about I think if we get to it, I'm going to talk about Gideon and obviously the gospel and the spread of the early church. Interesting, because I was actually also thinking about talking about Gideon a little bit with this yes. passage. I actually had several conversations with a couple different people about that book, David and Goliath, and how it, how you can see some different insights about how God works and how it relates to other Bible stories of God working, namely Gideon. I think he was the one that stood out the most. All right, you want to get started? Yeah, so before I start, I just want to read something from 1 Samuel 16, which comes right before the story of David and Goliath. The David and Goliath story is in 1 Samuel 17, and I'm going to read from 1 Samuel 16. And this is the story of where the prophet Samuel is anointing David. And actually, I don't know if Samuel was a prophet or a priest, but Samuel was tasked by God to anoint the next king after Saul. And Samuel goes to Jesse of Bethlehem, and God tells him, I'm quoting from 1 Samuel 16, 1, I'm sending you, says God to Samuel, to Jesse of Bethlehem, I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And then verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to sacrifice with me. 
Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel, Samuel saw Eliab, who was one of Jesse's sons, and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. And then here's the key verse. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward, outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, right? And then as the story goes, Samuel goes through all the sons. God hasn't chosen any of them. And then he asks Jesse, do you have any other sons? And Jesse says, yeah, but why would you, essentially, why would you want him? He's out in the fields looking after the sheep, and he's the youngest. But Samuel says, and this is verse 11, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent him and had him brought in. He was ready with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him, for he is the one. And this is David. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. After a few lines, we come to verse or er, chapter 17, which is the story of David and Goliath. And so it goes like this. Now the Philistines gathered their, their forces for war and assembled at Sukkah in Judah. They pitched the camp at Ephes Danim between Sukkah and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up, drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites the other, with a valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor and of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not one of the ser- are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will be our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, "This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other." On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The first was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul But David went back and forth from Saul to tend to his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. Verse 20, Early in the morning, David left the flock with the shepherd, 
loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, This is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's older brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy, and he's been fighting. he's been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around, because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with the sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you should come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, and the whole world, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel, and those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands.
As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from its scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. And the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sharim road to Gath and Ekron. When the, Philistine, when the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put the Philistine's weapons in his own tent. So that is the story of David and Goliath that you find in 1 Samuel 17. Before adding just a little bit of historical context, Will, was there anything that you like noticed or anything that struck you from, that, from the story? Uh, I'm sure you're going to talk about it, but this story has become so familiar, especially in Western culture, that it's become synonymous with the underdog facing an established an established giant and right. succeeding. Right. But I think what you're going to talk about is how it's not necessarily that simple. Maybe the underdog isn't really the underdog. Right. Right, and that's something that Malcolm Gladwell in- mentions in his TED Talk is that this story has become s- sort of the symbol of l- like the underdog story in Western culture. It's known so well, but he also mentions that when he read it at first glance um, and then read it again and studied the story, Malcolm Gladwell says that everything he thought he knew about the story was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'll just... I'll try to summarize a little bit of his TED talk. I actually, I highly recommend watching this, this TED talk because he does a phenomenal job of explaining things. Um, and he, he, he explains things in such a way that you can visualize them and, and that he's really easy to listen to. Um, but sort of just to mention a few points that he hits on in his TED talk, he, he starts with the location of this battle in the Valley of Ella, E-L-A-H. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. But he mentions that this valley is actually between the coastal plains on the eastern side of Israel and the mountains on the western side of Israel. The mountains um, contain all the, all the major cities of biblical times like Hebron and Jerusalem. And then the coastal plains border the Mediterranean Sea and uh, it's where the city of Tel Aviv uh, now is. There is. The city of Tel Aviv is now on the coastal plains and what divides the coastal plains from the mountains is this thing he calls the Shephelah um, and it separates the coastal plains from the mountains and what the Philistines who Wait, were ser- what, is it? what is the Shephelah? The Shephelah. It's a series of valleys and ridges in between the okay. coastal plains and the mountains on the western side of Israel. Um, And so the Philistines, Malcolm Gladwell mentions, were seafaring people that were, like, 
Israel's biggest rivals or enemies. Uh, and, and so they're coming up from the Mediterranean, and they have their their dwelling on the eastern side, traditionally in the coastal plains of Israel. And what they would like to do in coming toward the mountains, toward the western side of Israel, is divide the kingdom of Israel in two. Um, and so they're coming up, going from east to west. Saul and his armies don't want that to happen because if they can divide the kingdom of Israel in two, they'll gain a strategic uh, advantage over the nation of Israel. So Saul and his armies come out and, and meet the Philistines in the valley of Elah. Elah. I'm going to say Elah from now on. And and what the the maps that I have in, in my Bible show is that they're essentially deadlocked in this valley. The Saul and his armies are on a ridge on the southern side of the valley and the Philistines and their armies are on a ridge in the northern side of the valley, right? And so picture two armies both encamped up in the up on a ridge or up in a mountain, right? Overlooking a valley opposite sides of each other, okay? And mm-hmm. they're deadlocked there. And and so neither army wants to go down into the valley and, and sort of initiate the attack on the other side because once you're in the valley you're completely exposed right by the to the artillery and and also you'll right have to fight uphill right you're gonna have to fight uphill it's gonna be more difficult right so um and so both armies are just sort of waiting for the other for the other army to initiate and come forward first right and so that's why the philistines send out goliath so what they're doing in sending out goliath um, is engaging in this tradition of what's called single combat, um, which which was a tradition in which one man from one nation or one army fights another man from the other nation or other army to settle dispute without incurring the bloodshed of a of a major battle. Right? I think mm-hmm. that's almost verbatim what Malcolm Gladwell says about single combat. Um, and so the Philistines send out their champion, right? And that's something uh, interesting that you'll notice in First First Samuel seventeen four. A champion named Goliath, and so sort of what I want to hit on with this word champion is is that Goliath had fought battles in the past, and he'd won in the past, right? So he's experienced. He's a winner. Um. And he's who the Philistines are putting their hopes on to win this battle. And the Israelites, seeing that he's a giant, can't find a man who's courageous enough to fight him, right? I mean, naturally, the Israelites think they're going to be destroyed. And and think about this. What's more is that in single combat, the hopes of both nations are resting on one person, right? So the hopes of the Philistines are resting on their champion, Goliath. And the Israelites, if they could send a man down to fight him, their hopes would be resting on him. Because what the what the Bible says in First Samuel 17 is, Choose a man and have him come down to me. This is Goliath speaking. Uh, verse 8. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will be our subjects and serve us. And essentially, it's like the winner of the battle like wins for the nation. And so he carries the hopes and the weight of those hopes of the nation into the battle. Um, and obviously Israel 
can't find a guy who's strong enough or courageous enough to match him. Um, everyone's terrified to do it. And was there anything you wanted to add on to just that, that brief historical context before we go on to talk about David and his advantages and Goliath and his disadvantages? Nope, I think it that's pretty thorough. Actually, before we moved on to the next part, I, I wanted to mention... One more thing. So First uh, Samuel seventeen eleven says that on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. First Samuel seventeen twenty six, David asks, "Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God?" And what I just think is interesting here is that you see Saul and the Israelites dismayed and terrified, and David calling Israel the armies of the living God, which just makes me say. If they're the armies of the living God, right? The God from whom creation flows, right? From who's the creator of Goliath himself. They're not acting like it. Like they're, yeah. which is, I don't know. I don't know what to make of that. They're, it's just an observation I would say right now. They're just not acting like they they are the armies of the living God who, who are the armies of the Lord Almighty and, and who know that the Lord is on their side. They're not acting like it. But to move forward, I would like to point out a few things that are that take some closer closer examination to really draw out. And the first one is the Davis or not Davis David <laughs> has actually an advantage um, in fighting Goliath, and the advantage comes from his weaponry and actually his skill in using his weaponry. Uh, so I'm just going to sort of talk about. David and his sling, right? And so when we hear the word or, or the term slingshot, I, I think most of us picture uh, one of those two two-pronged like wooden sticks or metal metal sticks that has that has these rubber bands that you can pull back with a rock in the rock in the pouch and sort of aim it and and just sort of let it go and see it like flutter toward the target and maybe hit it, right? That's that's my picture of a slingshot. I think that's what a lot of kids grow up thinking a slingshot is. That's not what David has here. What David has here is much more of a weapon than what we would think a slingshot is. What David has here is a sling, sort of a long and and think much longer pouch than we would give it than we would typically think. A much longer pouch with strings on either end or handles on either end that you twirl and you swing uh, to make revolutions, right? And so you put a rock in the pouch and you twirl this pouch and it. And I wish I could give you a visual here, but this is a this is a podcast. But just think about sort of twirling like the blades of a helicopter twirl around the the center of the the pivot point of the helicopter what david does in and slinging this slinging the rock is he creates a lot of torque right and he swings the slingshot very quickly and what malcolm gladwell says is he likely swung the sling at six to seven revolutions per second right and so what david does is he's slinging it this fast and he's creating this many revolutions per second and then he's gonna let it go and he's going to let the rock fly at his target. And in, th- in the, this case, it's Goliath. Based on the speed of the revolutions and, and the, the distance from the end of the slingshot to the, to the pivot point, 
the slinger, so David here, is able to shoot at 35 meters per, se- per second. And then what Malcolm Gladwell also points out is that this rock that David had was likely a barium sulfate rock, which are common in the region, common in the Shephelah in Israel. And these rocks are two times as dense as normal rocks. And, and so when you combine these two factors, how fast the, the projectile flies and how dense the rock is, David's weapon actually roughly equates to a 45 millimeter handgun. Okay, that's that's sort of the power that it has is a 45 millimeter handgun, and so David's walking into the fight essentially with a handgun, and Goliath has a sword and armor on. Whether or not his armor could stop a projectile flying that fast, I don't know, but it it's almost as if. One person's bringing a gun to the fight, and the other person is bringing a knife to the fight. And so that leaves us with the question of accuracy, right? So David might have this powerful weapon, but could he shoot it accurately? And what Malcolm Gladwell points out is slingers in the ancient era were known for their accuracy. There, a lot of slingers were able to hit a target from, what did he say, 180 to 200 yards away. Um, and so... David and and coming to fight Goliath sort of face to face this shouldn't be a problem for him he should definitely uh, have the confidence that he's able to hit Goliath with the stone and so not only is David bringing a weapon that equates to a 45 millimeter handgun to the fight he's, he's bringing confidence that he's able to fire and handle this weapon properly Okay, so that's that's a little bit about David's advantage. Was there anything that you wanted to sort of bring up or add to that, Will? Well, just when you were talking, I looked up how fast that is in miles per hour, and it's about 80. Oh, it's 80 miles an hour? Yes. Oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> but that is still ridiculously fast. It is fast, right. Um, not as fast as a 45-millimeter handgun, but definitely lethal. Okay, all right, so that's that's a little bit about David's advantage, or or should we say David's strength that we don't notice right off the bat mm-hmm. in coming into this fight. Um, and now to talk about Goliath a little bit. And what a lot of people don't realize until you study this passage a little bit further is Goliath says some strange things in this passage, uh, and I'm just going to read a few of them. So when David's coming up to fight him, Goliath says to David, Am I a dog that you should come to me with sticks? Which, that's interesting. David David doesn't have a stick. He has a staff. Mm-hmm. Right? And he has one, too. So why is Goliath saying that you come to me with sticks when David only has one stick? Right? And you know, maybe you can brush that off and say... Just generalizing. He's just saying Yeah, he's just generalizing. He's just saying stick. sticks. Yeah. I don't think so. And I... And I want to point out um, another strange thing that he says to David is he says come here he said and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field which is strange because the closer a slinger gets to his opponent the more accurate you would think he is and the more deadly his weapon would be it's like saying to to someone with a with a handgun who's aiming at you and a little bit off in the distance come closer so that I can fight you right which Goliath would need David to come close in order to get him with his with his sword, mm-hmm. but at the same time, David coming close does present a problem to him. 
Um, and then one more thing that you can notice, 1 Samuel 17.41. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. What Malcolm Gladwell points out is that Goliath, in the single combat duel, has an attendant. This shield bearer is Goliath's attendant. And so when you put all of these things together, one, why would Goliath need an attendant? Why does he think David has multiple sticks? And why does he want David to come closer to him? You kind of see that there's there's something strange going on with him. And what scholars in the medical community have said about this situation is that Goliath actually has a medical condition. And this medical condition is actually common um, in giantism. This condition is called acromeglia and it's a disease that goliath has and acromeglia is caused by a by a benign tumor sitting on the pituitary gland and it causes the overproduction of hgh which is human Mm -hmm. growth hormone as this tumor grows actually it sits right on the optical nerves uh in the brain and i i don't exactly know where this is i'm just sort of summarizing what malcolm gladwell says and what charles swindoll says Uh, in his talk about David and Goliath is as it grows it actually compresses the visual nerves causing blindness or causing partial blindness and which causes double vision right so what you see is Goliath actually has this condition in which he might have been cross-eyed or at least his vision um, was crossed so that he saw double and so when he says am I a dog that you come to me with sticks He's not just making a generalization. He actually sees two sticks. And that's why he says to David, come to me, right? Because he can't see him. And and so what Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell points out is, and this is really interesting. So the Israelites thought this that Goliath was some extraordinarily powerful foe, but they didn't understand that the source of his apparent strength was actually the cause of his greatest weakness, right? Mm-hmm. So... The benign tumor that caused the overproduction of HGH gave him all the strength and all the size, but it also obscured his vision. Yeah. And it made him clumsy, which was why he needed an, an attendant, right? Yep. And can I say just the reverse of that is true. For David, what seemed as weakness, you know, the fact that he's not wearing armor, he doesn't have a sword, he doesn't really know how to fight in a conventional way is actually his strength. He's more agile. He sticks to what he knows. He is able to defeat Goliath on his own terms. So what appears as his weakness is actually his strength. Right. And and so with this context, the way I see it is that we have like this behind the scene look, behind the scenes look at what's actually going on in the battle, right? So the Israelites and the Philistines that are encamped on the ridge on either side of the valley see one thing, right? They see a strong, big man, Goliath, with a sword and, and, and a record of winning to his name, a record of victories mm-hmm. in his own name. And they see the small shepherd boy with a sling, right? Hardly a weapon against Goliath's huge bronze sword and armor, right? And they see, like, this is no match. But given the context, we see something a little bit different, right? We see behind the scenes, Goliath's strength might actually be his weakness, and David's what a, what his apparent weakness is might actually be his strength, right? Which is why I read at the beginning the passage from First uh, Samuel 16, which is, Do not consider his appearance or height. This is God speaking. For I have rejected him. 
And the key verse, the Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Mm-hmm. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, right? And mm-hmm. so given, and here's my question that I sort of want to analyze and talk about, given the behind-the-scenes look at David's advantage and Goliath's weakness, what can we say and what can we learn about God himself? Where is God's hand in the story? And so what I want to do in, in answering that question is sort of look at David and his perspective and going forward. One, I think this is an important question to consider. Did David know about Goliath's weakness? Did David know that Goliath had a medical condition? Two, was David extremely confident in the ability of his own weaponry to take Goliath down? What did David see as he was going in? Did he see his own advantage and Goliath's weakness? Did he see that part? Did he see behind the scenes? Or is he going in in blind faith, right? Is he going in and saying, my God is going to deliver me? Because it seems like if he knew about his advantage and Goliath's weakness, he's not able to say in full faith, or at least he's, he's, he's not saying in full faith, it's God who's going to deliver me. It's him saying, it's my accuracy and Goliath's weakness. It's my advantage and his disadvantage that's going to result in the outcome of the battle. But David doesn't say that. He says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for, it, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands, right? Um, and that, this sort of parallels a psalm that David wrote, which you can find in Psalm chapter 20, Psalm 20, verses 7 and 8, where David writes, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name, going back to the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. And in both of these passages, you see David saying, we trust in the name of the Lord our God, right? First Samuel 17, uh, I think it's 45. I come to you, I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Psalm 27, we trust in the name of the Lord our God, right? And what, what's interesting, if you analyze the story of David Goliath in, in the context of the psalm, as you see sort of this positioning of, of the people who trust in chariots and horses and the people who trust in the name of the Lord Almighty and the Lord our God, right? Those who trust in chariots and horses, if you look at the parallel between Psalm 7 and Psalm 8, some trust in chariots and some in horses. And then David in Psalm 8 parallels that with they are brought to their knees and they fall. Right? And then going back to seven, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God, paralleled with the second part in verse eight, but we rise up and stand firm. So the people who trust in chariots and horses, they come into the into the situation already on their high horse, right? Not no pun intended. Already standing at least seeming to stand firm. Already, you know, broad shouldered chest out, confident of victory, but they are brought to their knees and fall. And so David, entrusting in the name of the Lord our God, they come in with a different positioning. They come in much lower, right? They come in not relying on themselves, but relying on God. 
And, and then David writes, verse 8, but we rise up and stand firm, right? So they rise up from, from down, from a, down, from a lower position and stand firm, whereas those who come in trusting, trusting in their own resources are brought to their knees. They are brought down from their high position and they fall. And, and so that just sort of echoes what you can find in, I believe it's the book of James, and I think it's chapter 4, is where James writes, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble, right? And if, I don't know if you know that better, um, but there's there's also the verse in which it says, God exalts those who are humble, but he exalts those who are humble because those are the only ones he can exalt. Otherwise, he, has, he, he brings down hmm. those, those who are standing firm on their own resources already because he's the only source of strength. Yeah, I never thought of it like that. You know, but, Jesus talks all the time about the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Right. Which um, is sort of the, the, the upside down, the upside downness, right, mm-hmm. of like God's kingdom is like the paradox, the meek will inherit the earth, right? God exalts the humble, but resists yes. the proud, right? Um. Uh, before we go on, I do kind of want to push back on something you said, though. Okay. You you say that David didn't know Goliath's weakness, or you don't think that he did. I I so I don't know. Like, and that was sort of my question: Was David coming in full faith in God and God alone, or did David sort of have a semblance, or, or sort of see behind the scenes a little bit? Hey, I actually have an advantage on him. I don't know. And I, I think, think, yeah, go ahead. I don't think those are as opposed as you think. Okay, keep going. I think that David obviously had a plan. I think the way that God really worked in that and what is so incredible is that David saw that. God allowed David to see that. It's kind of like when Moses comes up to the burning bush. He sees that it's burning, but then he keeps looking, and then he starts to think, why isn't this bush burning up? And that is when God speaks to him. So there's a part of, there's a part of faith that requires attention, and okay. I think that's part of David's faith, is that he trusted that God can overcome him, and that God would overcome Goliath. And then he really listened. He looked and he listened and he found where Goliath's weakness was. He, it's almost like internalizing the truth that God says, you know, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Do you, see, do you kind of see what I mean? Yeah, I I do see what you mean. Because he obviously had a plan. He went into it with a sling and five stones, you know, he had some backup. He he had a plan going into that. But he could have easily just like most people would have just gone out there and, you know, fought him with a sword like everyone else would have. And he was planning on doing that at, at first and then said, 
no, no, this this isn't what God wants. I I think that's that's really interesting. Um, there's a song that I'm that I'm looking up the lyrics to. Oh, it's called "This We Know." The the name of the song is "This We Know," and the chorus goes like this: "This we know, we will see the enemy run. This we know, we will see the victory come. We hold on to every promise you ever made, Jesus. You are unfailing." Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the verses says, "Our God through the wilderness, our joy in the heaviness." And then here's the here's the the per, the portion of the verse that I really want to look at is our way when it seems there is no way our way when it seems there is no way and then it says and it goes jesus and part of me thinks okay you're onto something here like the the need to pay attention look at a look a little bit closer right and that being an aspect to faith but also the idea of impossible situations and how mm-hmm. faith does indeed approach impossible situations right you think about moses before the red sea and this is like exactly what the song sort of hits at or illustrates is moses is standing before the red sea and the israelites and in order to make it safely out of egypt and escape the egyptians have to cross somehow but there's no way across they cannot get across by bridge they cannot get across by land they have to go through the water but they don't have Mm -hmm. boats right and so it seems that there is no way to get from this side to the next Uh but god makes a way but god makes a way through Mm -hmm. the impossible situation and he parts the sea right which only god can do there are some things that only god can do he makes a way where it seems there is a where there where it seems there is no way right isaiah 43 16 and I'm reading from the King James Version because this is the fastest version that I could find up, uh, find online. I don't usually read from this version. It says, Thus saith the Lord, which maketh a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters. Right? And then it, and then it goes on to say, Which bringeth forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power. They shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinct. They are quenched as tow. Remember ye not former things. Neither consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring spring forth. Shall ye not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and the rivers and the desert. Right? Mm-hmm. And so you see the the themes of the, that hit back of the Exodus of God making a way through the Red Sea. Of God making a way through the wilderness. Of God opening the rock right to bring forth springs of water of him making a way in the dryness where it seems there is no way and and bringing forth fruitfulness right yeah and this is a key element of faith is that when we get to our end he's the one who provides a way he's the one who provides a way for us to keep going and ultimately as him him being the object of our faith we trust him not our own devices, not our own advantages. And so part of me thinks when you consider this, David, maybe he, he had the notion, keep looking, right? Maybe he had the notion, I have an advantage. But it also seems plausible to me that he went in thinking, there is no way, but my God will make a way, right? Which is ultimately the ground to stand on, which is ultimately the ground that he says in Psalm chapter 20, 
is the ultimate ground to stand on. We trust in the name of the Lord our God, nothing else. And what I what I think is really interesting is that the Philistines, you 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 can tell by their actions, had put their trust in the wrong thing. Okay, and I say this because First Samuel seventeen says that when the when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran and and that seems so strange to me what are they running from are they running from a shepherd boy with the sling surely he can't take out an entire army with just and i mean if you had known that he only brought five stones with him surely you wouldn't be as afraid but he can't take out the whole army but they run they run from him why and i, I argue that it's because they had put their hopes in their hero they put their hopes in their champion goliath and when he was dead their hopes were dead. When the object of their trust was dead, they turned and ran because they didn't have another hope and they didn't have another way. Mm-hmm. Which sort of helps helps me to, leads me to another point that I want to draw out about faith mm-hmm. is that you, you people always have faith in something. You always trust in something. The Philistines had faith in Goliath. David had faith in his God, right? And in our day I, I mean you see a lot of people have faith in in you know their financial security a lot of people have faith in their status in the community and a lot of people have faith in their nation's ability to protect them right but what happens when those things are gone and i, I want to point out when those things are gone you turn and run mm-hmm. um can i just say something the yeah. god obviously works in miraculous ways without any sort of you know any sort of human input like bringing manna to the israelites they didn't do anything you could even argue that it wasn't through any individual that god works but then you look at other stories such as david and goliath also you look at the story of gideon god using 300 troops specifically whittling down from 32,000 to 300 to defeat an army of I think it was 120,000 or something like that it was like a ridiculous number right God obviously can work through people or not and I think part of faith a big part of it because we don't know which way he will work we know he will though and i think we have to remember what shadrach meshach and abednego said before they were thrown into the the furnace they said we have faith that our god will save us no that he can save us. that he can save us and we think that he will save us but even if he doesn't he's still god and we won't bow down to you Right. So he's saying God can work in miraculous ways, but even if he doesn't, we will still obey. And this whole story really, really reminds me of Paul. And if you read the book David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell, at the beginning of the chapters, you know, he has like some verse that he quotes. You know what I'm talking about? I've never read the book, actually. Oh, 
You should. It's good. It's yeah, like the best Malcolm Gladwell book. I don't really like all of the stuff, but that's a different point. Anyway, in second, he quotes Second Corinthians twelve. Actually, he says okay. Paul is talking, and he says, "Even if I should choose to boast, this is verse six. Even if I should choose to boast, I will not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted." but what I do or say, or because these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was giving a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Verse 8, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's now, funny that you mentioned, well, keep going actually, because there's something I want to talk about with that, but keep yeah. going. So I brought this up to my cell group last semester, and I really challenged them with the question, okay, what does Paul mean when he says, for when I'm weak, then I am strong? And the answers that I got were, well, it's that God overcomes his weaknesses and shows him strength by, you know, maybe if he wasn't courageous, overcoming his lack of courage. Or I guess that's not that good of an example, but God overcomes our weaknesses. And that's not what he says. He says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Right. And so what I think it is, is God using our weaknesses. God gave him a thorn in the flesh. Okay, that sounds pretty bad. We don't really know what that is. But in some way, he can use what we see as weaknesses to be strengths. Right. It's not that God overcomes the weaknesses. It's that he works through them. Yes. I had... And when I was talking with him, I had I gave this very basic example. Obviously, there are better examples than this, but in Discovery Group, which is kind of what you'd come to become a member at my church, I led worship, you know, playing guitar. I was the only one that could play guitar in the group, but I can't sing. I really can't sing, and you know this, John. <laughs> so... That is like a weakness. I can't sing. So what had what do we had to do instead? Everyone had to sing right. loudly to drown me out. And <laughs> God really used that to, instead of one person singing loudly and everyone else just kind of listening to, wow, that person has such a great voice. No, everyone is singing. And through that, you know, we grow closer as a community, but we also grow closer to God and sing his praises loudly. So that's a way of, this is a very basic example of God using our weaknesses as strengths. Right, yeah, and that's a, what I wanted to point out, and it's funny that you mentioned Second Corinthians, is because I'd drawn up some notes on Second Corinthians about this podcast beforehand, and the theme of weakness being used as strength by God is a theme throughout the book, or the epistle of Second Corinthians, and you see it in Second Corinthians 4. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to read from verse 6. Paul writes, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, 
made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And then here's, here's the verse that I want to look at. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed in every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. And then he goes on to say, verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Mm -hmm. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is unseen, not on what is seen, sorry, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And this goes right back to 1 Samuel 16. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that's why Paul encourages readers, his readers not to look at what is seen, but, but on what is unseen, right? Because God, our model, looks at the heart. God, whose glory we are designed to reflect, looks at the heart. Therefore, he calls us to look at what is unseen, right? And I love the image of, of we have this treasure and jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And it's interesting that you mentioned Gideon just a little bit is because this image of jars of clay looks back at the story of Gideon. And I don't know mm-hmm. if you remember how Gideon actually uh, conquered the Midianites, but what they did was they surrounded the Midianite camp at night. Um, and, and what they did, because Gideon only had a force of about 300 men, I believe, if not less, they surrounded the, the Midianite camp where, where thousands of Midianites were sleeping, right? And what the Israelites had were jars of clay and they had a lantern and a light inside the jars of clay. Um, and what Gideon said is, listen, when I say these things, when I give them the signal, we're all going to shout and we're going to bl- break these jars all at once. Right. And we're going to wake up the Midianites just like this. And what happens is Gideon gives a signal. The Israelites shout all at once and they break the jars of clay. And, and what you see is these lights surrounding the camp. Yeah. And what the Midianites begin to do is they think that the Israelites are upon us and there's thousands, there's a multitude of them when really there's only 300. Mm-hmm. And what the what the Midianites begin to do is they begin to freak out inside their own camp and they fight start, each other. Yeah, right? they start and, killing each other. Right. And Gideon essentially is just able to look from his position and see as the unexpected begins to happen and he begins to realize this wasn't my battle after all. Mm-hmm. Like I, I was, I was afraid for nothing. This was God's battle the entire time, and that's what David says, right? Yeah. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. All yeah. those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, mm-hmm. and He will give all of you into our hands. The battle is the Lord's. The battle for David was the Lord's. The battle for for Hezekiah when he was surrounded in the city of Jerusalem was the Lord's. When the the angel of the Lord went out and struck down hundreds of thousands of the enemy that surrounded Jerusalem, right? You can look up the story. I believe it's in 1 Chronicles chapter 20. The battle was the Lord's. The battle for Gideon was the Lord's. And so what we see here in getting a look behind the scenes 
at David's advantage and Goliath's weakness was that God was planning the, the battle the entire time. And his victory was written, right? It was written into the, into the situation itself before it was actually revealed. Mm-hmm. Right, go on. That, yeah. I, I love the picture of the story of Gideon, of the jars and clay and the lights beneath it. Because in a way, that's, that's the story of God using us. We are those jars of clay. And when we suffer for the name of the Lord, when we are broken, crushed, all that's revealed is the light that's within us, the Holy Spirit. And that is what terrifies the enemy. It's not the jars of clay. It's what's inside. And we don't, we, we have a perfect representation of this in Jesus, our Savior. He, he came as a lowly carpenter, born of a teenage, unwed girl named Mary. He came very low. You see, when they come, Mary and Joseph come to dedicate him in the temple, they bring the lowest sacrifice possible because that's all they had. He came very low, but he was the son of God. This shows God's power in using the lowest of the low. And he didn't come and he didn't conquer with armies and drive out the Romans and establish a kingdom in Israel that would last physically speaking. No, what he did was he did the exact opposite. He was crucified by the Romans. He was crucified, but he overcame death. He rose again, revealing God's power, showing us that the meek will inherit the earth, the lowly will be exalted, and the exalted will be made low. He established the Christian church the early church, and they were persecuted. They were burned alive at Nero's garden parties as human torches. They were thrown into the Colosseum and mauled by lions. They were persecuted, and they were crushed, but but God used that. He spread them throughout the entire world, and doing and doing it this way, the gospel didn't just reach the high classes. No, it permeated all classes, the low, the, the middle class, the upper class, everyone. And it spread faster than anyone could possibly imagine because of their persecution and the faith that people saw and the way that they treated other people. It just I it reminds it, me. Go ahead. No, I was just, I believe that, I believe it was Paul. Where does it say that? Give thanks in all circumstances. I believe that's what Timothy, that's, First Timothy, or no, First Thessalonians five eighteen. In everything, give thanks. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. I believe. In everything, give thanks, even the horrible circumstances, because God uses those horrible circumstances. Right. That reminds me of the story of the hiding place, right, mm-hmm. in which. Betsy and Corey are in the concentration camp and and they're just exhausted and exasperated by the circumstances and and the horror of their circumstances Mm -hmm. and they can't seem to escape them. It's Mm -hmm. it's one bad thing after another and they go to their bunks at at, uh, Ravensbrook. They go to their bunks which are designed for like three, 
four people, but they ended up just overcrowding and could fit like 15 or so on. And their bunks are covered with fleas. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember this part. Yeah, and, I do. And Corey's just upset, like, fleas, like, seriously, can we not mm-hmm. get a break? And and she sees Betsy, like, praying to herself and whispering to herself and asking God. And Betsy's asking on, what do we do? What what do we make of this? And Betsy That's then it. just begins to give thanks. She give begins thanks to thank for God fleas. for the fleas, right? And so ultimately, you come to find out that in this in this room, in, in the in the dorms, in the bunk room, Betsy and Corey uh, somehow smuggle their Bible in, and they're be, they're able to conduct these worship services at night uh, that they shouldn't have been able to do, but were but were able to do. Um, without interruption or intrusion by the Nazi guards, which was fascinating um, because the, the guards should have kept such a strict watch on the bunk rooms and never should have let this happen. But what Corey comes to find out later is that the reason the guards weren't allowed in the room, or the reason the guards never entered the room, rather, were because of the fleas. Yeah. It was because of the fleas that Betsy gave thanks for. That the guards were afraid of that, and they were the reason that they were able to have these worship services, right? And they were able to gather and fellowship with each other and encourage each other at night in, in such hard circumstances. And it was something as silly as fleas, right? Mm-hmm. Which leads me to 1 Corinthians 1, 18, where Paul writes, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligence I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. And Jesus came in, 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 in what seemed as, as weakness and, and foolishness of mission. And he came through, the foolish, to, through foolishness to display God's wisdom. I just think that's that's just worth thinking about. Uh, and it's worth, you know, paying attention to and worth examining. Yeah. But I Did that's you have all. anything else like I I that was that, that's all, all I wanted I to talk about. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, Perfect. I'll see you later, Will. All right, I'll see you. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.